So Money episode 1273, The Cost of Climate on Real Estate. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. What we have seen and what we have heard is that they're going to be essentially what they're describing as climate refugees from the coasts moving to the center of the country. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. As promised, this entire week is dedicated to the cost of climate change. And today our attention shifts specifically to real estate and the impact the stress and hazards of climate change are having on prospective buyers. My guest is friend and former guest of So Money, Aditi Shaker. She's the co-founder and CEO of Zeta, a financial services company for families. She and her husband are considering leaving Silicon Valley, where she founded her company for a more climate-friendly destination, Bozeman, Montana. She'll walk us through the process, some of the financials, and the the behind-the-scenes of their house hunt, and what we can all learn from this. If you're in the market for a home right now, there's a new wild card in the housing market, and that is the cost of climate change. I've got a big article on this coming out later this week, which of course I will share with you, but you can actually go to CNET right now and begin our day one coverage of the cost of climate change. I have conversations with experts from all realms of life talking about the biggest financial predictions caused by climate change and lots more coverage. So check out CNET.com or go to SoMoneyPodcast.com and I've got the links. Here's Oddity Shaker. Oddity Shaker, welcome back to So Money. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. I am loving life right now and excited for all the challenges that are coming my way. Well, in the past, you've been on the show, Aditi, to provide insights and your expertise as the co-founder and CEO of Zeta, which is a platform for families and couples navigating their money. But today, I wanted to bring you back on for a different reason, to just share your personal story, the story of you and your husband, Delmar, uh, your plans to move out of San Francisco, the tech hub, to Bozeman, Montana. And I know this is a goal driven by climate change concerns, and that is the theme this week. Before we dive into that, though, let's just catch up. How is Zeta doing? I understand the evolution of the company has also helped to make the move outside of the valley easier. Yeah, for sure. So Zeta is a financial institution for families. We have a personal finance manager for couples and we just launched uh, joint accounts as well. Um, And, you know, the company has grown a bunch since we last spoke. uh, And we've gotten to that place where we're now really starting to think about how we build a remote first culture into our into where we hire, how we support our employees as they as they go remote. And frankly, how we actually build a company that's represented of the population and the people that we're trying to serve. Um, and, you know, my personal <laughs> my personal circumstances as a result of that shift is that my husband and I, uh, for the longest time, have talked about our dream in life. But for, this actually started as my dream, honestly. Um, but our dream has sort of evolved into one day owning a ranch. And, you know, in my retirement years, when I'm, um, you know, ready with tech, done with tech and, and ready to sort of settle down is to focus on building an animal sanctuary. And I've been telling my husband about this dream for decades at this point. Um, 
And when COVID hit and the two of us, you know, started to one, work entirely from home, but two, start to leave San Francisco as we did that work and work remotely in 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 the sort of various aspects of the countryside, we realized that we actually really enjoyed that dynamic and really enjoyed that vibe. And I remember my husband turned to me one day and he was like, hey, babe, you've been talking about this ranch and I'm kind of on board and ready to do it now. Would you want to do it now? And so it completely opened us up and, uh, and, you know, we started having this really, really productive conversation about two years ago, I would say, all about, you know, how how would we even do this? Where would we do this? Um, and the thing that both Delmer and I have thought a lot about is the impact of climate on where we buy. Because our thesis is this ranch is something that we want to own forever and ever. We don't want to buy and sell. And, you know, maybe one day even possibly pass on to our kids if we if we decide to go that way. So um, we, we've thought a lot about, and both of us, I think, have a very strong belief that climate is sort of the number one impact that our generation is going to feel uh, and have to contend with. And that land in, in areas that are, let's just say, less impacted by climate are going to, is going to be hard to come by. So we'd love to make that investment now rather than wait, uh, you know, several decades uh, to be able to do that. So that's why this whole Montana plan came up. And it's really sort of where it's all stemmed from. Take me behind the scenes to San Francisco. How is climate change impacting your day to day life there? What have you witnessed? What have you experienced? SF is, uh, we just literally yesterday, uh, or the last couple of days really, had been um, the craziest rain fall we've seen. I think it was the ninth highest day of rainfall in California ever recorded. Um, and so we just, our house got flooded, our backyard got flooded. So this is an incredibly well-timed conversation. Um, but San Francisco overall, I mean, California more broadly is really feeling the impacts of climate. Um, there's so many aspects of climate that that SF, or California has to think about. It's everything from the tsunami or potential tsunamis to you know the droughts in various parts of the state um, to even just the weather patterns changing and evolving. Um, you know, anecdotally, one of the things that we often talk about is there's a week in September in San Francisco where it's unbearable, but most people don't typically have air conditioners in their homes, but that's actually changing as people are building, when they're building new homes in SF now, they're really starting to think about putting in AC, uh, in a way that you just didn't think about in, in SF. So the, the dynamics locally are really evolving and bluntly, you know, there's this climate side of it, but there's also the tech side where as venture starts to become a lot more of a global uh, space and Silicon being in the valley necessarily becomes less and less important. There, these two dynamics are making it really possible for Delmar and I to have this conversation in a way that's realistic rather than, you know, a pipe dream. Um, and then the last thing is, of course, I mentioned this briefly, both our companies have really embraced a remote first culture, which has given us that flexibility to be able to go uh, and leave SF without feeling like we're having to compromise on the work that we want to get done and, and want to focus on. What are you hearing uh, on the grounds as the leader at Zeta, families and households across the country using your service, having conversations? What are the discussions happening right now at the intersection of climate and money? You know, I think a lot of people are thinking about one, how, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about this as a country right now. We've got to make an incredible amount of investment in climate uh, to, to sort of 
deal with the impact of what climate is going to do to to the entire country. And so we're having a conversation about taxes, whether we should raise taxes to accommodate for that spending. So that's already having at a, a happening at a macro level, and that's filtering itself down into several different dynamics. You're seeing um, families who want to invest more in, in climate positive or climate reducing efforts. We're seeing um, people just be, be more conscientious about, you know, buying uh, assets or real estate, or frankly, just even, you know, owning homes in, in places that will not be as severely impacted by climate. Um, and, and, you know, uh, in fact, I was just talking to a realtor in Napa the other day, and they were explaining to us that one of the big uh, sort of one of the criteria that people really have to think about when they buy a home in Napa now is whether that will get insured because of the fires and a lot of those you know plots of land or or, or houses will no longer have insurance coverage which is scary when you're buying an asset over you know that's several hundred thousand dollars or more and and you saw it in New Jersey recently you know you we've seen it in Napa due to the fires i mean there's there's so many aspects of the country florida is another great example there's just so many aspects of the country that is feeling the impacts of climate and insurance companies are you know avoiding paying out as much as they can and there's it's it's tricky because it could un, all sit under the natural disaster clause and if that stuff isn't covered you're you're really stuck when when you're in trouble Something I'm learning more and more as I'm getting into all this climate research is that, you know, what I'm hearing reinforced in so many of the interviews with experts from the insurance world, the mortgage market, realtors, banking, is that not everybody's on the same page yet as far as how climate is going to impact our financial decisions. And so what we've got right now is like no consistency, no um, consistent guidance for consumers on how to buy that house right now, whether or not to get flood insurance, where do you move to? Consumers need to be, as a result, extra vigilant and be out there proactively seeking answers kind of on their own. And and the truth is, Farnoosh, it's hard to know. I mean, the, the reason that you have so many of these folks who are unwilling to commit is because we also just don't know the impacts, the full impacts of climate. We, we have expectations. We have some, you know, like confirmed hypotheses, but they're still still like work in progress uh, points of view. And and I think the, the challenging thing is the research is just won't know until we really start to see the impacts uh, in a more tangible way. So for example, we see the floods happening in certain parts of the country. We see fires happening in certain parts of the country. But again, it's really difficult to tell how, what exactly that's going to look like. And and what I will tell you is from our research, and this is, you know, the research of, of one couple in San Francisco. But, you know, what we have seen and what we have heard is that they're going to be essentially what they're describing as climate refugees from the coasts moving to the center of the country as people try. However... The, the challenges in the center of the country are going to be related to still related to fire and water water shortages. So as uh, you know, it's not that you're you're essentially going to be free of climate impact in any parts. It's just going to be a matter of minimizing as much of that impact as possible. And the second the second big thing that we're seeing is that you know and again this might not be surprising, but the colder areas are going to warm up. So places that might have seemed really, really cold and maybe not where you wanted to live, like say Michigan, no offense to anyone living in Michigan, you know, might actually be a great place to live uh, in, in 10, 20, 30 years. 
Now, no place you could argue is immune to climate change, but you did feel that the Rocky Mountains were a safer bet than the coast yeah. of California. Why is that? Yeah, for sure. And and just a caveat, we actually picked Montana. Dummer and I sat and did a bunch of research uh, and contacted a bunch of folks to try to figure out where we thought the sort of climate impact was going to be as minimal as possible. And then when we looked at that map, we started to say, okay, which areas are we personally excited about? And I won't go through that exact criteria quite yet, but but you know what? Where we netted out were that the two states that the two of us were really excited about were both Colorado and Montana. Um, and each have their slightly different impacts. Like Colorado has much a higher risk of, of fire and water, um, but Montana also has a fire and water issue. So Montana, we're we're looking um, around Bozeman, which is very very close to Yellowstone. And if you remember your geological history, Yellowstone's actually a massive volcano. Um, it's it's essentially a caldera. And so you know there's there's a lot. Um, uh, sort of to unpack there. And there's a lot of possibility there, but it's interesting to me that you said that realtors aren't feeling the, the sort of effects of climate, because as we've been house hunting and ranch hunting, as I like to call it in Bozeman, one of the most common things I ask about is actually water rights. And it's incredibly difficult to get your hands on water rights in Montana, because everybody knows that it's going to be one of those resources that they really have to fight for. Water rights. Dive into this for me a little bit more. Something I never thought that I would have to care about as a buyer. Water rights. Tell us everything. So by the way, I knew none of this when I started this process either. So, uh, you know, like we we were all learning together, really. Um, When we started house hunting, there were a couple of things that became really evident to us. First of all, you know, the, the sort of standard size of a lot in, in and around Bozeman isn't, uh, you know, half an acre or an acre, if you're lucky or quarter acre, as we're most used to, when we're, we're house hunting in cities, it's actually five, 10, 20, 40 acres tends to be that the, the, the sort of plots of land that you're looking at. And interestingly, they don't call them homes. They call them tracks, tracks of land. So it's, it, it has a lot of the agriculture uh, language that they use uh, to to really identify and and talk about those lots of land. So in Montana, you know, there's there's been a decent amount of um, folks who are trying to farm. You know, hay is hay. Uh, they they farm hay. They have alfalfa. There's all kinds of things that they're sort of really growing on those spaces. So a lot of those folks have leaned on uh, and and have ranches as well. So they've leaned on. Uh, resources around them are accessible on that land for them to access to feed their animals or to grow their farms. And water is something that, you know, Montana has had to contend with. And so it's become a thing that's incredibly important because the water is coming to areas like Bozeman from the mountains that are surrounding it or the Gallatin River. And so this is something that we started to get really savvy about as we started uh, house hunting. And one of the things that our realtor said is like, hey, just a heads up, water rights are extremely complicated. And if you really want to gun for them, which you absolutely can, you'll need to definitely get a water rights lawyer involved to make sure that any sort of claims to rights are in fact actually solid because they've been incredibly murky and frankly, not always clear about what's happening. So, you know, again, completely like a world that we we really 
didn't know anything about, but for us was incredibly important to talk about and think about when we were looking for a plot of land. Water rights attorney. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know that was a job. Like, wow, that's fascinating. I mean, a real estate lawyer is probably going to have some sort of water rights expertise in, in a state like Montana, but it's it's a fascinating thing. Is water rights more of an issue because you're looking specifically for land? Do property owners, buyers have to care about this too? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think it really depends on the size of land. So in our case, we're really aiming to buy more acreage than less. And so our goal was to say, one day we want to you know, own an animal sanctuary. We potentially want to build some sort of farm there. And so for us, water made a ton of sense. But say if you're buying closer into the city and you're plugged into the city's water system, that wouldn't necessarily be a thing that you would necessarily, you know, you would try to buy for because it's it's not you, you'd always be able to access water through the city as needed. Um, we also the other piece that that you know you can you can think about is outside of water rights, there are even just covenants on the land. So what can you actually do with that plot of land? One of the things that we were really attracted to Montana about was the libertarian point of view where, you know, there, there's this like general thesis that you you want to be able to do what you want on that land. Whereas coming from a place like San Francisco, there are a million rules on what you can or cannot do with any plot of land. So one of the other criteria that Dumber and I thought a lot about is what are the types of covenants on that land? And that covenants can range from, you know, no commercial activity to um, being the other day, I actually saw a covenant that's explicitly said no sheep, goats or pigs. So somebody really didn't love sheep, goats and pigs and decided that no one on that property for centuries to come was ever going to own them for centuries. Wow. <laughs> they're hard. They're, they're changeable, but they're hard to change. So this specific piece of property that we were looking at was uh, a pretty massive property. It was 300 acres. Um, so it was beautiful, beautiful property. But one of the rules was that, or two of the rules were that there were no specific kinds of animals that I just described, and there was no commercial activity allowed. And those rules were actually so old that you could, you know, in the photocopies of the covenants, like they're barely legible. And some of them can't even get tracked down. And so another thing that realtors tend to do is say like, oh, it is the buyer's job to go figure out whether the covenants, you know, what the real covenants really are. We can sort of just give you what we know. And who are the sellers of these homes? Where are they moving to? Um, so in this specific lot, it's actually a couple who moved to Montana, who've lived in Montana for a while. They're actually moving to Billings, Montana, uh, a different part of the state, and they're giving up their ranch uh, because they want to be closer to health care. Uh, and the type of healthcare they needed was in billing specifically. But they're an older couple. They're actually retired. Um, they were they have an army background, and you know they were just uh, sort of staying in their home. They built actually a beautiful custom home for themselves and their grandkids. But they've decided they just want to downsize. And so far, you feel like you're finding options. You're finding homes that meet some or most of your criteria. What's the market like? So this is a crazy thing. We actually are shocked at how, one, there's a limited amount of inventory, right? So there's, you're talking, I think if you open up Zillow right now and with our criteria, it's like 60 plots of land are available or 60 homes are, are available in that area around Bozeman. Um, the second thing is um, there are a lot of rules and you've got to decide in any search which rules are 
absolutely required or which rules you're willing to have some flexibility on. So in our case, we had originally said we'd absolutely want water rights. And then we realized, wow, it comes at such a steep price and it's also so hard to find that maybe that's something that we're willing to be flexible of, but we don't want to be flexible on covenants. We want as much flexibility as possible on, you know, to be able to do whatever we want with the land rather than feeling like we we can't do this or we can't do that. So we came up with a whole bunch of we, we really understood sort of all of the possibilities as we started um, searching for land. And now that we've seen so many places, we've really whittled down that criteria to must haves and nice towns. And so all of these you know, stars, if I can say, they've aligned for you and your husband to make this decision to move yeah. to Montana. Um, the remote work happening, realizing, hey, San Francisco is an unlivable, unsustainable climate. Mm-hmm. It's part of the country. But at the same time, you know, moving can be really hard. It's stressful. People don't want to feel like they're leaving their families in their hometowns. They're worried yeah. about climate risk, but they don't want to feel like they're fleeing their homeland. So how do you make this decision feel right to you personally? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I will say, I think what you're trying to describe is like, we're doing this on our own terms. We're not being forced out of SF. We're not, um, we're not in a place where, you know, it's, it's do this or, 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 or your house gets burned or your house gets flooded. Like we're, we're really in a lucky place. Um, and I will, I will caveat Delmar and I grew up all over the world. We've moved our whole lives, both of us. And so we have more of a willingness, I would say to move than probably your average couple. Um, that said, we absolutely adore door our neighborhood in San Francisco. We live in a neighborhood called Bernal Heights, and it is the sweetest, most loveliest neighborhood, I would argue, in all of SF. And and we both of us, you know, on a weekly basis, sort of turn to each other and say, oh, man, we're really going to miss it. Um, but that said, we, you know, I, I told you the story about how when we were in COVID, we actually made an effort to leave SF and work from different parts of the country, work from outside major cities. And the two of us realized that we just really enjoyed it. The dogs loved it. We loved it. Um, and and it, it was completely possible for us to live a really full life as long as there was certain infrastructure near us. And that was a really good lesson for us because we realized, okay, if if our work allows us to be flexible and we have the means to leave SF and, and the willingness to leave SF and, and move, then the other things that we have to think about is wherever we're moving to has the infrastructure that we need to be successful. And what I mean by infrastructure is a couple of things. One, you know, education, access to schools um, that we may potentially want to send our kids to in the future, um, access to health care. So w- one of the reasons that we picked Bozeman was there are two major health facilities that are being built up there. And that gave us a lot of confidence that we would have access to that health care if we need it. And worst case, we could also go to Missoula, which is about three hours away from Bozeman um, in the event of an emergency. And the other piece was internet. This seems like a really silly thing, but <coughs> excuse me. Um, 
internet was a was a big thing for us because we have tech jobs and we need to be able to have access to really strong signal at all times and that was typically not available when you were thinking about you know these these bigger sort of lots of land and, and a little further away from downtown so one of the things that starlink has really made possible and and you know credit goes to elon here is really giving more people in more parts of the country access to solid internet to be able to do more um, you know, rather than having to be in the core cities. And then the last piece of criteria, and this is a funny one, but Delmer and I made a deal that we we both were willing to run to the grocery store as long it was as long as it was no more than 30 minutes away. And so we that was sort of how we drew our radius around Bozeman was we we realized we didn't want to be in downtown Bozeman. We really wanted more of the the country feel, but we were only willing to go as far as about 20 to 30 minutes outside of Bozeman. So we drew this little circle and that's really been our ability from all of the sort of grocery stores around Bozeman. And that's been sort of our, our radius that we've looked at for a plot of land. And Bozeman, yeah, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal, has evolved a lot over the last 10 years where it was yes. more remote, but now you have a downtown with multiple Starbucks, Lululemon, tech companies moving their headquarters there. It's happening. Yeah. The one thing that we are very nervous about, though, and, and this is not a small thing, is Delmar and I, like I said, grew up all over the world. So we're just used to an incredible amount of diversity. The cities that we lived in the U.S. are D.C., Chicago, New York, uh, Denver, San Francisco. So, again, really, you know, cities that have a lot of diversity. And one of the things that we were continue to be anxious about is what it'll feel like to suddenly not have as much diversity where we're headed. And I think what we felt when we've visited and spent time in Bozeman is that, you know, people are incredibly lovely and kind and, and open-minded and, uh, you know, and a lot more, um, sort of, uh, I think they're different than we, I don't know what preconceived notions we had, but it was definitely not, uh, there was definitely something cause we were both like, Oh, wow, this is actually not that crazy. Um, but there is this dynamic of, you know, what is it, what does it look like? Um, if, you know, all of your neighbors have completely different political ideologies than you do, what does it look like if, you know, people ask you more ignorant questions than you're used to? I remember when I first went to Chapel Hill, I went to you know, UNC Chapel Hill for college and I'd moved from Tanzania and people would ask me all kinds of questions. Like, where'd you learn to speak English? And I was like, what are you talking about? The rest of the world speaks English too. Like, why is this such a shock? Or people would ask me, you know, if I had AIDS cause I came from Africa and I was like, what really? But, but I mean, these are just like, you know, if you've not had that exposure and you've not necessarily had uh, that experience, then those things do come up. And I think one thing that Delmer and I actively talked about was one, what it would be like to live in that context. And two, what, what it would be like to raise kids in that context. It's fascinating to see what's happening. But I do wonder how these residential shifts, these migrations uh, will impact our country politically, you mm -hmm. know, where right now we have communities that are disparate, certain ideologies mm -hmm. live in certain parts of the country. And then we're going to have more of a blending because of people looking for refuge in a climate changing world. I mean, we're both actually really excited about that, both of us, uh, because, you know, when we lived in Denver, for example, we in, in Colorado, we actually ran into a lot more folks of different ideologies than us. And one of the things 
things that we really enjoyed was that it felt like you could have really authentic conversations when you're sitting across the table from each other. Whereas when you're online in an anonymous forum, you can just be a lot more uh, mean or, or you know, uh, unempathetic. Uh, and, and what we found was when we were in those rooms together, we could have conversations with folks and they would ask us questions. And, and there was this exchange that that honestly felt actually really good and bluntly something I would love to see more in this country. So we both actually kind of see it as an opportunity for us to share our experiences with folks who might be nervous or scared of folks that look like us, immigrants, you know, um, who are so-called taking everyone's jobs and, and whatnot. Well, Aditi, thank you so much for joining and sharing your story with us. Certainly inspiring for all who are listening and Listeners, if you'd like more information, we are running an entire series on climate change, the cost of climate at CNET and Aditi's anecdote, along with others around the country about how they are assessing real estate right now. Aditi, thanks so much. Absolutely. And I was going to say, let's make a deal that our next So Money recording is on the ranch in Bozeman. Well, it better happen soon because I don't want to wait too long before you're on the show next. Aditi, thanks. Thanks to Auditi for joining us to learn more about her journey as well as others around the country that are incorporating the cost of climate in their home buying calculus. Stick with us at CNET.com where we're going to be covering the cost of climate change all week and next week. Thanks for tuning in. On Wednesday, we're going to talk to the co-founder and CEO of Rallyus, a new digital bank that promises to exclusively use depositor money towards ESG, environment, social, and governance projects using your bank money to make an impact. That's on Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in everybody. And I hope your day is so money.